Uh, before we read scripture, I just, uh, I guess, just a disclaimer. This morning, we are going to look at a hero of the faith, Jephthah. If you know anything about him, Whew, what a guy! Um, this series is called "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly," and this is all ugly with like a smidgen of good. And um, we'll read the first part this morning, and then we'll go through the details. Uh, I was just considering that this morning. I'm, I'm thankful. Well, I did on purpose that we did not do Jephthah with the kids in the service. They may have not wanted to go home with their parents, but anyways, you'll, perhaps you'll see. So with that said, we're going to read again Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 and verse 32, and then Judges 11, the first 10 verses to get us going. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to do so. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then uh, verse 32, and then Judges 11. In Hebrews 11, verse 1 reads, Faith shows us the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And then drop to verse 32. How much more do I need to say? It would take me too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. And then if you turn to Judges in the Old Testament, Judges 11, read the first 10 verses there. Verse 1 reads, Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior, he was a son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also had several sons. And when these half-brothers grew up, they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our father's inheritance, they said, for you are the son of a prostitute. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Soon he had a band of worthless rebels following him. At about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked the elders of Gilead, sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, Come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to them, Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Because we need you, the elders replied. If you, let us, if you lead us into battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, let me get this straight. If I come with you, and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, will you really make me ruler over all the people? The Lord is our witness, the elders replied. We promise to do whatever you say. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word and this time that we have together, Lord. And thank you for blessing us. Thank you for a church family. Thank you that uh, this church family is part of your bigger kingdom, Lord. So we do lift up other churches who proclaim your name. And uh, we just pray for their service as well and those services that will come later. But Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word by your spirit. We thank you for preserving your word. And Lord, just again, prepare us. Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, we don't. And we'll be careful to give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So for those of you who are familiar with this story, perhaps this is not the portion of the story you begin with. Maybe this might be the first time 
that you've read Jephthah. But regardless, this is a wild story, and it only, gets, it only goes downhill from here. I just wanted to just take some time uh, to first point out he really is, Jephthah that is, in Hebrews 11. That's why we read <laughs> verse 32. I wanted to make sure I wasn't making up things. Now, so far in the story that we've read, we see that he starts off in, in a rough circumstance, in, in a hard background. Just, just, just to remind us of what Judges is going on, Judges is a very dark time in the Israelite history. Um, in its history, it's the famous period, if it can be summed up in the words that is used over and over again, eight times. In those days, there were no kings of Israel. Everyone did, and here's the part that we see repeatedly, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again and again and again, we see that. And then we see this, this judge cycle. Things are going okay. Then they, the Israelites start to follow other false gods, other religions. They are in some kind of bondage, captivity. They call out mostly. Sometimes they don't. God just comes and intercedes for them on their behalf. He raises up a judge, a ruler, to help them come out. And then it's a cycle again. Then they start doing sin again. So this is a very dark time. In Israel's history. So much so that a lot of the rabbis in the early first part of the century, as they cover judges, they, they sometimes referred to them and us. That was, you know, weird uncle, whoever. That's not our family. It's almost like this sense of shame, which we'll see happen again and again. But just as we read, just, just the background of Jephthah, Jephthah just is thrown on the scene here. A little bit at the end of Judges 10, just to kind of introduce him. But Jephthah of Gilead, Gilead was his land. He was a warrior. His dad's name was Gilead. They lived in Gilead. But his mother was a prostitute. So what was going on is very classic. His dad was married. He didn't have any children, at least at this point. He slept with a prostitute, had a child, brought the child home. The Jewish tradition suggests that the prostitute left the baby at his doorstep. So Gilead's wife also had several sons after that. And as we read in verse 2, his half-brothers grew up and they chased Jephthah off the land. You will not get any of our inheritance. So Jephthah flees. He's gone. He runs out roughly 15, 16 years old. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, so he had a band of worthless rebels following him. That doesn't mean that they didn't have any worth in God's eyes or, or anything like that. It just means basically he collected all of the homeless people, all of the people who were kicked out and said, you want to start a band? And they did. And they started, and these rebels started going around and started attacking. And here is Jephthah. And what, what's interesting here is that he, what I first looked at is he got kicked out of the house. But what was interesting is he, it's not his fault. Who here chose their parents? Me neither. And I'm not asking you if you choose different parents. I'm just saying, did, who here chose their parents? And, and, and what's interesting here, and even in Jewish tradition, something should have happened to his dad. He should have had to, at the very least, paid a tax or did some kind of sacrifice 
to ask for forgiveness. We don't see that here. All we see is his half-brothers grow up. They start counting how many there is, and they said, well, you're not even really one of us. So they kick him out. And that got me to, to begin to consider that. And I just wrote down, it is easier to get rid of the thing or the item or the person. It's easier to get rid of those items that remind you of your past sins or your mistakes or mistakes in your sins than to deal with what really happened. It's easier to get rid of the things that remind you of your past than actually repent and deal with it. It's easier to forget and push out those memories than look back and see how God redeemed the situation if in fact we've asked for forgiveness. And I think it's so easy for us just to Sweep it under the rug. And, and I'm not suggesting that we celebrate sin. I know sometimes that can be a problem when people are sharing a testimony. One of the things that I have noticed is in the way in which people share their testimony. And I'm not trying to be judgmental. I've, I fell in this trap before. Is You look back at your old life, your sinful life, or where you come from and think, oh man, the good old days. No, they weren't. They weren't good old days. Don't, whenever you are telling your testimony, here's a sermon on the side that no one asked for, but whenever you are telling your testimony, don't romanticize your past sin. I see that again and again, even in, in youth groups and children's groups, even when a dad or a mom is telling their children, if they do tell their children, I, which I would suggest you do share your testimony, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but don't concentrate on the bad as the good old days, but talk about how bad it was and how good God is has been. And all that to say is, is whenever we are getting rid of our past sins, don't get rid of the things that just simply remind us. Make sure that the sin is dealt with. And it wasn't dealt with. And we're going to see this as a theme again and again. If you remember way back, however many weeks ago, I think it's been seven now, that we were talking about Samson. Just again and again, the cycle. He never dealt with his issues. He just covered it up, moved on, pressed on, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. So all that to say is he's now kicked out, and we'll pick up in verse 4. It says, about, at about this time, the Ammonites began their war against Israel. When the Ammonites attacked the elders of Gilead, of Gilad, Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Tob. The elders said, come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. And Jephthah said, oh, now you like me. Now you, now you need me. But he does ask that question. First, he says, aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? Because we need you. We're saying, we need you now. We didn't need you then. We need you now. Now, if I was to take a survey, who here would help? <laughs> I, I probably would, eventually. I, I think I would be mean. I like, let me think about it. Or the classic Christian, let me pray about it. <laughs> and I'll get back to you after you're half defeated. But I know that just, I was just thinking about it. How would I really respond? And then I, considering more, how do, how do I respond whenever I've been wronged or rejected when someone comes back? But he says in verse 7, uh, again, uh, kick me out of my father's house. Why do you come to me now? Verse 8, because we need you, the elders replied. If you lead us into battle against the Ammonites, we will make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, let me get this straight. Let's just make sure I'm understanding this clearly. If I come with you and if the Lord gives me victory over the Ammonites, 
will you really make me ruler over all the people? He went from being rejected from his own house. Now you're going to let me be in charge of this whole portion of the Israelites? And then they promise. Verse 10, the Lord is our witness. The elders replied, we promise to do whatever you say. Now, if you're a highlighter or an underliner of your Bible, underline that. This is what's going to get partial of what's going to get Jephthah in trouble. We promise to do whatever you say. Spoiler alert, Jephthah makes this ridiculous vow, but so did they. We promise to do whatever you say. Have you ever said that and regretted that? Hey, if you help me get out of this jam, I'll, do what, I'll owe you a solid. And then whenever the solid comes, you just wish Jesus would come back. You just, I didn't really mean it. I just, I, I promise. But they're so desperate. But they just made this vow. So he agrees. And, and I'll just give you the synopsis of what takes place for the next uh, 18 verses or so. So the first thing that he does is he sends a message to the Ammonite king. The Ammonites are the ones who are attacking. He says, simply ask, why are you attacking us? Makes sense. And they said, you took our lands. But he knows the history of Israel. He goes, oh, no, we didn't take your lands. Technically, the Amorites took your lands. We took the land from the Amorites because God told us to. So there's a lot of back and forth. You can go back and read it. There's letters that's going back and forth. Uh, he's really trying to avoid this conflict, this battle, this war. He's really showing good discernment. He knows the history. If you line it up to actually what took place all the way back whenever God promised uh, the land of milk and honey, it lines up. He knows it perfectly. The Ammonite king says, no, let's fight. So they fight. Um, and let's pick it up in Judges 11, verse 28 through uh, 33, and then we'll stop there. But the king of Ammon, which is the Ammonites, paid no attention to Jephthah's message. At that time, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, and including Mizpah and Gilead, and from there he led the army against the Ammonites. Just, we'll stop there real quick. Verse 29 says, the spirit of the Lord came upon. Remember in the Old Testament, God the Father sent his spirit as needed, as required, and then withdrawed his, withdrew his spirit when they didn't need it. Now, now that we live post-Pentecost, so now the Holy Spirit dwells in us, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. So, but at this time in the Old Testament, here you have the Spirit as you need, as required to do great things. You can see this over and over again. Perhaps the biggest one is when uh, Saul in, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord was withdrawn from him and then put into David. You can see that transition. So now the Spirit of the Lord is with him. So he's going through and he's leading the army against the Ammonites. Verse 30, picking up in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said... If you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So you, you see the deal there? Stranger danger. <laughs> Don't do that. But l let's just be clear what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on him. No requirement for a vow needed. 
No vows for the Lord needed, we're going to see here in a moment. Just to be clear what he says in verse 30, at the end of verse 30, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, devastating about 20 towns from Arrow to the area of Mineth and as far away as Elbel Kamir. In this way, Israel defeated the Ammonites, and the Ammonites are almost completely wiped off the face of the earth. But did you notice that? If you, then I. If you give me victory, then I. Remember what the elders told him? If you do this, we will do whatever you want. Words gets us in trouble. False vows gets us in trouble. Again, have you ever made that promise? If you do this, I promise I will. And then whenever the promise is then turned in, you're like, uh-oh. I mean, we see over and over again. We won't turn to there. We'll, we'll have many passages to look through this morning. But we're told over and over again not to make rash vows or hasty promises. We see it in Matthew 12, 37, Proverbs 20, 25, Ecclesiastes 5, 2, Ecclesiastes 5, 5, Ecclesiastes 5, 6, on and on and on. There's so many more. Here's the, here's the problem. Don't make conditional deals with God. If you, God, then I will. God, if you do these things, then I will respond, making a conditional deal. And I'm, I'm assuming just about everybody in here has done it. I, I, I was trying to really honestly think back of the first time I made that deal. I, I think, as far as I can remember, because I save random stories for me to make fun of myself and to share, I think the first time was in fifth grade when I didn't study for my tests in math. And I said, Lord, if you help me magically delicious, and I did say that because my theology was really bad and it was referenced to Lucky Charms. But if you, if you somehow like zap me with this knowledge, I promise I will study for every test for now on. You want to know how I did, don't you? <laughs> Solid D. Thank you very much. All right, God, you didn't fulfill your promise. Maybe I didn't clarify it enough. So I remember doing it a couple of times. And then, of course, I told you a portion of my testimony, uh, surrendering my life to go into full-time ministry. God, if I don't want to be a poor pastor, let me be an engineer. I promise you that if you let me be an engineer, I'll change baby's diapers in the nursery. I'll, do, I'll go to children's church. I'll go to the camp. I'll do whatever you want as long as you don't. If you, then I. If you do this, then I will. And, and I don't know, and there's probably been more dumb things that I've done in that vein, hopefully less and less as I've grown. But everybody in here, most everybody in here said, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll show up to church on Sunday. Anyone say, if the Niners win, I promise I'll go to church? Or I mean, like, whatever it is. I mean, we range from sports all the way to real life-threatening things. Lord, we're at the hospital, whatever the situation. If you, then I. See, and the more I was con 
considering this making a conditional deal, the first thing I thought of is, who in the world am I? Who in the world are we to make any deals with the Lord? The second thing I was thinking of, really I want to concentrate on here just a little bit. In many ways, this is work-based faith. This is work-based salvation. Just to be clear, that's bad. We've not earned our salvation. Christ did it all. But perhaps the order is different than what we're used to. Sometimes work-based is, I'm going to work really, really hard. And if I work really, really hard, if I do enough good things, then maybe they'll outshadow my bad things, then God will accept me. Or some variation. Typically, the work-based faith is I have to earn my salvation, again, which isn't true. We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by what Christ has done on the cross. But work-based faith is when we feel the need to do something to earn something from the Lord. We look at our life and we try again to add up the good versus the bad, and that's the key to salvation, which is not true. Again, I can't stress that. What Jephthah does here is a bit of an upfront guarantee workspace. Lord, if you do this for me, then I will work, I will give, I will fill in the blanks. I think perhaps one of the biggest reasons why work-based faith is so easy for us to fall into, even though we know better, or perhaps we've come out of a tradition that really uh, focused on that, um, I would suggest that there are several tra- uh, traditions throughout history that has tried to do that. See, what we try to do is we are trying to control. We feel that if we have some kind of control in our salvation and, and we have some kind of control, then we will have some kind of control in our walk with the Lord afterwards. So if we have some, something to do with salvation, then we will have something to do with our walk with the Lord. It's like being the minority owner of a business or a minority owner of a sports team. You're not the main force. You're not the main owner. You're not the, the guy, the gal in charge, but you do have some skin in the game. Has anyone ever used that term, some skin in the game? I have. You know, we can't give the kids free pizza. Got to bring 50 cents. Got to have skin in the game or whatever it is. That kind of that mentality, it's, it's, it's this mentality of, wait a minute. If I'm the minority owner, if you are doing something as the majority owner, I can say, wait a minute, I don't think I like that. You're not under this full ownership. You have a say-so. Another way to put it is there was a theologian, he, he said this many years ago. He said he was talking to a lady, and she said, I really have to work for my salvation. And he said he was going round and round with it. And in his old English, it was quite, quite good. And she said, uh, work base, I like it better because it's like paying taxes to the government. By paying taxes, you can throw up your hands every once in a while and say, oh, no, I'm not doing that. Remember, I pay taxes. I have some right here. I have some say in this, meaning you, you don't have full control of me. I can say no to something. Now apply this to the Lord. Feeling like you're the minority owner in your salvation is a way of giving yourself false permission to say no to God. Hold on, God. You can't ask me to surrender my whole life to you. You can't ask me what Romans says to be a living sacrifice to you. 
Remember what I've done? Remember our deal, if you, then I, or if I, then you? It's a requirement. You, you, you see the fallacy in it, but you also see kind of, well, you know, I don't like paying taxes, but I like to tell the government no. You know, I, I like to say, hold on, wait a minute, you mean you want me to fill in the blank? See, this is what Jephthah is doing. Although he has the Spirit of the Lord in him, he's going to have this great victory because of who God is. He's saying, if you give me something, then I will sacrifice to you. That if then. See, Jephthah knew the history of Israel when he was going and debating with the Ammonite, trying to, Ammonite king trying to fight or not avoid the fight, trying to work it out. But... He knew the history, but he did not know the heart of God. Just quickly, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31 through 32, which I'm going to say ironically, I don't believe in irony in this sense, but it's interesting that in Deuteronomy, it, it spells out so much of the history, but also right after in Deuteronomy 12, it says this, verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12, This is God speaking. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. So be careful to obey all the commands I give you. You must not add anything to them or subtract anything from them. So key there. See, what was happening, and and this is the assumption at least through studying, when Jephthah left his father and he became a raider, he was very aware of what was going on and he became similar to the Ammonites. Ammonites, top five people who sacrificed children. Top five. There's the... Don't look it up, it's gross. But one of the things that they would do is, is, is you know the Pied Piper? You know that fairy tale, that story with the little goat man walking through the forest playing, playing some kind of flute and all the children follow after him. Pan is a god of the Ammonites. Pan requires a sacrifice of children. So this fairy tale that we, you know, tell our kids, don't tell your kids, but you you play, they followed this piper all the way to the top of the mountain to be sacrificed. In Israel, I don't know what Israel's going to look like. We'll probably go there in 2030 unless the Lord returns, whatever. But what, what, there's a place there where you could see what they would first do is kill a goat, throw it into the water. If the goat floated, the sacrifice was not acceptable to the pan god. Now we need to sacrifice a child. This is what the Ammonites were doing. This is what Jephthah saw. But yet again in Deuteronomy 21:31, this is not what the Lord required. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. Can you apply this to modern time? I think we can. Don't worship God the way that we see the world worshiping God. Surrender your life to, the, to God. For they, and he says, for they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They burn their children. So verse 32, here's the key. So be careful to obey all the commands I give you. You must not add anything to them or subtract anything from them. Which means directly, don't add vows. Just follow the Lord. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end when Jesus is talking, he says this, Matthew 5, verse 34 through 37. But I say, 
Jesus is saying, do not make any vows. Okay, well, we could stop there and go home. Do not say, by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. We do not say, by our head, but we say, cross our heart. Same difference. Just simply say, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Or New King James, let your yes be yes and your no's be no. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Vows is from the evil one. Now, don't get me wrong. Just clarify. We do make vows when we are getting married. That is not from the evil one. Stick to your <laughs> vows, just to be clear, okay? I, was, I always try to think, being a youth pastor for so long, I try to think of all of the reasons why people say, excuse me, but does that mean... No, be married, okay? Stay married. All right, so Ecclesiastes, and then even, even before that in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 5, 2, and 3 says, don't make rash promises. Don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven, and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. We sing that song, or the song's on the radio. So let my words be few. It's not talking about worship. It's talking about making rash promises. Verse 3, too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. Follow the Lord. See, this shows you can be religious and miss out on the intimacy with God. In religion, we can fall into the trap and say, well, I've always done it this way. My family has always done it this way. My church has always done it this way. My denomination has always done it this way. The way I was brought up has always done it this way. I'm doing it because I'm doing it because I'm doing it. Where what we see is if Jephthah really had this intimacy with God, he would have simply said, God, will you give me victory over the Ammonites? Or he could have said what we had studied with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if you don't? Nope. He makes a vow because he wants a little skin in the game. He wants to have a little bit of that minority ownership. If you do this, then I promise to do this as if God needs anything from us. The other thing that I notice here, and and we'll, we'll touch on it in a minute, is there's no priest involved, there's no elders, there's no friends, there's nobody. There's no one that doesn't say, hey, this isn't honoring the Lord. Like, shh. Right? I mean, again and again, we see in Psalms 50, Hosea 6, Psalm 51, Psalm 40, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, on and on and on. Essentially, rough paraphrasing, the Lord doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your burnt offerings. He doesn't want any of that. He just wants you. I'll just read just one here. Psalm 50, verse 8. Not for your sacrifice do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. For I, he goes on, for I de- desire a steadfast love, not sacrifices. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants our heart. He doesn't want what we can promise him. So, it, it, so what we see here is if you, then I. If you, then I. Or we can flop it. God, if you do this, then I will. If I do this, then you will. 
really what, when we come before the Lord, what we need to say, because you are, I will. Because you are my savior, I will follow you. Because you are great, I will surrender my life. Now remember, I think it's really important here, just real quick, you may be thinking, well, this is kind of extreme. I know what's going to happen here in the story. We have to remember that this is a shame and honor culture. A shame and honor culture. There's various ones. We live in a guilt, innocent culture. There's a fear and power culture. Just quickly, fear and power culture is whoever has the most power wins. The fear is there's ghosts, there's spooky things. So we have to do just the right combination of things to keep it safe. I know when John and Linda go to Cambodia, they see a lot of those spirits and we got to appease them and make them feel good. This one is a shame and, and honor. Ours is guilt and innocent culture or, or perhaps it's, it's uh, right or wrong culture. We, we make laws that determine innocent and guilt knowing the experience of individual rights. So what we do is yes, no, right, left. But this is a, a shame and honor culture. And it's not shame and honor for, the, honor for the individual person. It's what kind of shame or what kind of honor do I bring to my family, to my group, to my community? It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It's does this bring honor or does this bring shame? And I can do the wrong thing, but if it brings honor, that's okay. And we'll see this play out. So let's pick up the rest of this story, starting at verse 34 from Judges 11. And it reads, when Jephthah returned home, so remember his vow, I will sacrifice to you. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned home from Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. You see that? You remember what he said? Whatever comes out of the house, Lord, I will sacrifice to you. That should break her heart. It breaks my heart. And then what happens? His little girl comes out playing the tambourine and jumping for joy. Oh. You may think, why the tambourine and jumping for joy? Remember Miriam, Moses' sister? This was a sign of a great victory to celebrate. She just came out, came home to celebrate her daddy's victory. And notice the words, she was his one and only child, the same Jesus, his one and only Son, this is a detestable sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice was ultimate. That's why we don't need to make a vow. Verse 35, pick it up there. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out, you have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord I cannot take back. What do you mean she destroyed you? You're the <coughs> dum-dum that made the vow. But he rips off his clothes. That was a sign of mourning. He knows what it was. Now, when he was making the vow, I, I, I'm assuming he thought a cow, a sheep, not his daughter, would have come out. 
In verse 36, listen to her words. Remember, this is the shame culture, shame and honor culture. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. Who would say that in our right and wrong culture? Sorry, Dad, think of something else. By the way, my boyfriend's picking me up and we're out of here. I mean, like, I don't know what would, would go on, but no. But her answer is, again, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must emphatically do to me what you have vowed, for the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin. Why two months? Two months is the time that it takes for a bride to get ready to be married in the Jewish culture. And she says, just let me go run with my friends because I will die a virgin. And in verse 38, you may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. She and her friends went to the hills and wept because she would never have children. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. So it has become a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. And that tradition is still loosely participated today. Now there is a debate whether or not Jephthah actually killed his daughter. There's some language in the Hebrew that suggests, since she said, uh, because I will die a virgin. And in verse 39, it says that she died a virgin. Even in the way that his vow, some people have suggested, it's a consecration, not a sacrifice. But what I've read, and, and, and I was really looking for a loophole to have good news for you, I promise. Even up to this morning, about 6 o'clock this morning, I was praying, God, is... Did he not kill her? Can I just tell everybody that it's okay? She just became a temple worker. Remember Hannah? She dedicated Samuel. It was great. No, I don't see it. Um, it wasn't up until the Middle Ages that mo before the Middle Ages, commentators said he sacrificed her. The... The Midrash, which is the commentary of the old rabbi scholar, they, they call him a despicable, horrible, fill-in-the-blank man. So the, the rabbis up until the Middle Ages hated him. And they say all kinds of mean things about him. Nice job, rabbis. But they, they just cannot understand why they would do that. Quoting Deuteronomy, which, which I read, quoting do not make a vow, quoting several other things. But after the Middle Ages and then going in into the Enlightenment pyramid, pyramid, period, <laughs> when we started getting more sophisticated, then we, when, then we went back and looked at the Hebrew and tried to look for loopholes. And yes, there is an argument that she could have lived in the temple just like Samuel did for the rest of her life. Maybe. But even reading the original Hebrew text, and you can do your homework, I think he killed her. 
again, most of the rabbis at the time and thereafter, several hundred years after, they agree with that. Um, it's heartbreaking. And, and here's, here's one other thing that, that if this hasn't broken your heart yet, one comment, are you glad I didn't say this in front of all the kids last week when we had lunch? They wouldn't have went home with you. Except they do need to know vows. But really, read this. If your heart isn't broken over this, let's read Leviticus 27. And we're just going to read 2 and 3, and then we'll skip down through 5 and 8. So this is God giving Moses direct commands. Verse 1 says, and the Lord told Moses. Verse 2, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate someone to the Lord by paying the value of that person, here is the scale of values to be used. Now drop down to verse 5 because it, it, it just labels other people's ages and their value. Verse 5, a boy between the ages of 5 and 20 is valued at 20 shekels of silver. A girl of the age of that age is valued at 10 shekels of silver. Got that? You make a dumb vow, you go and you pay the value. She is a girl, she's not married. It uses the word girl, not matron, not woman, not any of that. So it's safe to say that she is between the age of five and 20. Her value is 10 shekels. So just drop down to verse eight, just real quick. If you desire to make such a vow but cannot afford to pay the required amount, take the person to the priest. He will determine the amount for you to pay based on what you can afford, like the first sliding scale, right? So you see that? If you make a vow, a special vow to dedicate or to consecrate, she is worth 10 shekels. And if you can't even afford that, which he could, he just won this great victory. But if you can't afford it, go to the priest You'll look at your tax return and to determine what you can pay. That's essentially what it's saying here. So to break the tension for a moment, I wanted to know how much 10 shekels of silver was. And there's a really cool website if anyone else is a big nerd like me. It's called testamentpress.com. And you can type in any amount of money at any time throughout history, and it will give you what the current value is today, 20 years ago, what it would have been to Roman Egypt, it's you'll waste lots of time, but it's a lot of fun, okay? You're welcome. So, 10 shekels. It's not the same as shekels today, but 10 shekels at this time, according to this calculator, for $1,740, he wouldn't have had to sacrifice his daughter. I mean, layaway plan at least. I mean, like something. But he didn't know that he was so caught up. This is what I said I was going to do, and I'm going to do it. At least I know in my experience, I've, I've not ever offered my children in that way. But if I've, the things that I've said, and I was so determined, and the reason why I kept them, because my word is truth. Well, if they break what God has asked me to do, then don't do them. It's called Pride. Now, I'm not saying that if you shake hands or you sign a contract and then all of a sudden you, you prayed through it, you talked about it, and you realized it was unethical, unbiblical. I'm not saying there's not consequences. 
his consequence would have been $1,740. All right, if you get me out of this bad situation, I promise I'll help you steal a car. No. I know I signed this contract saying I'd do this. I realize that it's really unethical and I'm cheating some people. I can't do that. We have this thing where we say our word is our oath, our bound, or our word, which is true. Let her yes be yes or no be no. But if that leads you to sin, that doesn't, it's not what God requires of us. Again, just thinking of some of these traditions of growing up with or family traditions or we've always done it this way. If they're not biblical, don't do them. Ask God for forgiveness if you've made a vow and say, I'm responsible for my vow and I'm sorry. Ask the person for forgiveness, pay whatever it is. But I think this happens to us, this can happen to us, but not to this extreme. It's because of pride and, and we're more worried about what it will look like on the outside than what it will look like with our father. We're caught up in being religious instead of having this intimacy with God. Sometimes when we read this story, it's just so shocking and we can fall into the trap and say, well, I'm not as bad as this guy and he's in Hebrews 11. And that was the other thing I struggled. Why in the world was this guy in Hebrews 11? And then I went and I was reading and John Stott, who was actually quoting Spurgeon, said, sometimes God takes people who are good and when they do great things, he brings himself glory. Sometimes God takes people who are bad, who happen to do a little good, and he can still bring himself glory. And then Spurgeon would go on and say, don't be too quick to assume you're the good. I know that is for me. So just a couple of takeaways, just it's clear in scripture. We don't have to make a vow with God. God. God's paid it all on the cross. Yes, we can ask him. We can present our request. Lord, this is, this is where I'm at. This is the situation. This is the person sick. This is fill in the blank, whatever it is. And Lord, and, and may us be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And even if you don't, I won't go astray. And remember that God is the one that is calling us. It's not if you, then I. It's because you are, I will. Because you are my savior, I will. And let us not try to be the minority owner in our salvation so we can throw up our hands and say, hold on, God. God is beyond the majority owner. You were bought at a price. He paid it all. So when he asks us to follow him, we should. And when we read the story of Jephthah, it breaks our heart. And regardless of what actually happened with his daughter, again, I, I, I think he sacrificed her. God did not accept that. I don't think the priests were involved or anything. I think, I think he did it. Don't let pride get in the way of saying, you know what, I said yes, but it should have been no. And do a heart check. Make sure that we are continually in Scripture and seeing what is it, Lord, that you want from us. So as we 
We're almost done with this good, the bad, and the ugly series. You see that this good, this bad, this ugly in this series is God has always been good and is always good. The bad is either what we've done or what has happened to us, and ugly is just the reality of our sin. And again, God has forgiven that. All you have to do is come to Christ, confess that he's Lord and Savior, repent, and be his. Let's pray. So God, we come before you, and, and this is a hard story to read, and especially in our culture where it's, I think for any culture for that matter, but just to see someone make a vow that there was a way out and a vow that shouldn't have even be made, and, and Lord, before we're too quick to jump all over Jephthah, Lord, let us do some self-reflection. There are things that we've promised or said or made a vow or did that may not have had this consequence like this, but um, there is consequences, Lord. And, and Lord, thank you for the fact that uh, we, we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to come in your good graces or do anything for you, Lord, that we just surrender our life to you. And the things that we do, Lord, let, let it be out of a place because we are so thankful for who you are that there is nothing else for us to do except show gratitude by walking in step with you. Lord, we know that we are reminded to be holy as you are holy, Lord, but the only reason we are holy is because of your son. Will you remind us that you bought us at a price that you were willing to? And more than just covering up our sin, Lord, you dealt with our sin. You paid the full price of our sin. So Lord, help us not try to make some conditional deal with you. If you, then I. Lord, let us just come to you and say, because you are, we will surrender. Lord, thank you for the series and for your word and just seeing a lot of the good, the bad, and the ugly, which helps us reflect on ours, but always seeing that you are good and that despite that, despite our sin, that you are good, Lord. So we just thank you. So Lord, as we continue to worship you now and a couple more songs, Lord, we just speak to us. And if there's anything that we have to deal with in our lives that are not of you, we help us do that not to earn anything, but just to surrender to you. So Lord, we're just thankful for who you are and thank you for your love for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.